Hello, everyone. My name is Natalie Turvey. I'm President and Executive Director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to today's JTalks Live webcast, Reimagining Business Journalism. Thank you for joining us for these important conversations exploring the future of journalism. This is our final JTalks Live program of the season. You can find videos and podcasts of all of our past talks on the CJF website. And we look forward to being back with you in September with a new lineup of conversations featuring news thought leaders on pressing issues in journalism. We're grateful for the generosity of our exclusive JTalk series sponsor, TD Bank Group, for making this season of conversations possible. And our thanks also to our important in-kind supporters, CPAC and Cision. If you would like to support the work of the CJF, you can donate now or at any time on the CJF website. And a reminder to save the date for the CJF annual award ceremony on June 7th, where we will be celebrating Canadian journalistic excellence and highlighting emerging talent. We're thrilled to announce that Margaret Atwood will be joining us to provide opening remarks at this year's CJF awards. For ticket information and details on our live stream, you can visit the CJF Awards website. Today's program is an hour long and you can still submit questions for our speakers at any time using the tab on your screen. And if you'd like to tweet about today's conversation, our hashtag is JTalksLive. And now on to our program. The world of work has been profoundly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Housing affordability, precarious work, social isolation, labor inequity, and the drive to automation are just some of the challenges facing the modern employee. So how can our newsrooms rethink their business coverage to reflect the post-COVID economy and ensure they stay relevant among their readers? Today, we are joined by a panel of thought leaders in business journalism who will share their insights on the future of industry coverage. Joining us from the New York Times, please welcome finance editor Anuprita Das. From Global News, senior digital broadcast journalist Anne Gaviola, and from the Globe and Mail senior business writer and columnist Rita Tritcher. They're in conversation with Toronto Star business reporter and longtime journalist on the business beat, Christine Doby. It is an honor to have this stellar panel with us today on our virtual stage. Christine, over to you. Thanks so much, Natalie. It's really great to be here with everybody virtually, as always. Um, but I'm really thrilled to have a conversation with these women about business journalism. Um, we, we had a prep call for this panel, and we discovered that we will have uh, no shortage of topics to cover during this conversation. Um, but I'd love to start with a question for you all about, about audience and how, how each of you sees the audience for the work that your, your media organization does so like who are your readers or your viewers and how are you trying to reach them and and has that changed at all over the past two years with the events of the pandemic which have really highlighted a lot of social inequities um as well as the business world and the, the broader world's reckoning with with racism and colonialism so i know that's a big topic um but really who who are you trying to reach and, and how are you trying to reach them um Preeta, i thought we could start with you um how do you see the audience for the new york times finance coverage yeah i think our readership is you know, we're writing for the intelligent, smart, well-informed, but general reader. So it's not a financially sophisticated audience necessarily, um, but it's someone who wants to know what's going on in the world of finance and business. And if they're going to read one or two or three stories about a particular topic, you want that the story you're writing incorporates all of that information. So you necessarily have to do um, much more in-depth piece of um, reporting and writing, a story that is much more analytical and comprehensive mm. that really addresses the all of the topics and ties together all of the different threads that um, you know someone who's following the news because of work might be kind of like going and reading every twist and turn, but our readers necessarily aren't going to do that. Now that's a very wide readership and it's a very hungry readership and what we've discovered is, you know, what we've been doing with um, our journalism is trying to um, make more of it um, at um, a faster pace. We call mm -hmm. it live journalism. 
to be more competitive, to also give readers news as it's happening, especially when it's Ukraine or recently with Elon Musk in Twitter, the mm -hmm. appetite for that story is relentless. And we mm -hmm. had a live briefing that just fed into um, you know, just different aspects of the story and it just got enormous readership. So we're trying to meet the reader in two ways. One is to um, give them that comprehensive, you know, pullback look, but also mm -hmm. when there is breaking news of interest, try to meet them like um, as the news happens to be competitive. And did that shift at all for you during the pandemic? I think you started at the, at the Times just before the pandemic. I started. did, is just, that right? Uh, yeah, three weeks before the pandemic. So yeah. for me, it's been largely virtual. I think if anything, the pandemic taught us, you know, and this isn't necessarily about business and finance journalism, but it taught us that our readers really do want um, live, immediate, up-to-date news because the thirst for pandemic-related coverage was so enormous and it was very broad. How does it affect the economy? How does it affect, you know, small business? What's happening to the markets? Why are the markets going up when the entire economy is, is shaking because mm -hmm. we've all kind of, you know, shut down? Um, how, when can I go out? There's so many, what's going to happen to work from home? Is this a temporary thing? So there were just so many questions and we tried to meet the reader um, in every format possible. And I haven't even talked about our audio and visual journalism efforts, because those are also kind of, you know, places of growth for us. But I would say that it just reinforced the notion and our efforts to kind of really meet people real time, while also pulling back. It's kind of like a, a juggling act. And I think we've, you know, learned that our audience appreciates that. So I would say that's definitely been kind of a big takeaway for us emerging out of the pandemic. That's so interesting. I know that we've at the start, we've seen sort of surges in interest in COVID and then um, really um, you could see the audience sort of tiring of COVID coverage. And then when, when, the, when the actual waves of COVID return, there's more interest in, in COVID coverage. Um, we'll see if we ever get out of that cycle. Um, but Anne, I wonder if you could talk about how you see the audience for the, for the business coverage that, that Global does. Um, and so I've got a bit of a unique perspective in terms of types of audiences. I've served three very different ones throughout the course of the pandemic. So at the onset of the pandemic, I was over at Vice serving a, mm -hmm. a you know, youth uh, media um, outlet and, and a, a really interesting and very specific audience there. And then I moved over to BNN Bloomberg and it was, you know, more of your savvy investors, niche, uh, but national. And then here at Global News on multiple platforms, it is a big, broad, mm -hmm. Main Street uh, audience. And um, these are people who I'm, I'm finding that the appetite for business stories and health, I would say those two, has been uh, voracious throughout the course of the pandemic. Um, and I have felt I have felt that whether it relates to, you know, what's going on with the housing market or stocks or uh, inequality, whether that's income or, or racial uh, inequality injustices and the rest of it. And so all of that folds into um, my beat and it's been this great challenge. I mean, and it's never been more exciting to, to cover uh, inflation, uh, certainly not <laughs> in, in recent memory. Um, so yeah, it's been really interesting. And the key thing for us is we try to be where um, our audience is. And sometimes that involves going onto platforms that you might not necessarily think of. Apparently some of my longer form pieces live well on Snapchat, for example. Mm. Um, and so uh, that is part of the you know new frontiers. I think business journalism is so valuable, especially for a Main Street audience. Um, I, it's not the kind of thing that's necessarily taught in schools, whether it's personal finance or what's happening with the economy and what that means for your household budget and your day to day. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just a, a very exciting and, and unique time. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Yeah, it must be interesting to get some take up on a Bank of Canada announcement and actually <laughs> some, <laughs> some desire to run a, a story yeah, on that. Wonderful. And yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm finding that, you know, once upon a time, and I've, I've been doing this for some time, I'm going to date myself a little bit, you know, 15 plus years. Um, and, and there was a time, there, there are lulls, of course, uh, and sometimes you have to work a little bit harder to sell a certain business story and say, no, 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 this is going to be really interesting and here's why. Um, there's a bit less of that I'm finding now in that I, I bring the story and there's great appetite for it. What have you got? What can you give us? And just, um, yeah, health, health and business uh, during the pandemic have really kind of risen to the top in my view. Sure. Um, Rita, what's what's the what's your view from the Globe and Mail and who the audience is for the report on business these days? 
Oh, well, so traditionally our audience has been, you know, the investor, um, you know, people who work on Bay Street, people who work in corporate Canada broadly. <laughs> um, but um, that has that is shifting. Um, so I am a business columnist here um, at the Globe, and I have a wider story selection or topic selection for my columns. Um, but in addition to that, uh, we are in the process of reimagining our own business coverage. In fact, we've called it ROB Reimagination. And I was <laughs> one of the members of that steering committee um, that was in charge of over, uh, overseeing that process. And so I can tell you some of the things that we're doing differently now is that we have increased our focus on, you know, personal finance. Um, I mean, that was always um, a key aspect of what the Globe um, had done. But I think there's a recognition that we need to do it for a broader audience segment. And there are four key segments that the Globe is really going after. Um, you know, we have the people who are early on in their career. Those are kind of new readers that we need to cultivate. There are people who are in mid-career, such as myself. Um, you know, they have different kind of milestone and, and planning needs. Uh, there are people who are senior in their career who are looking to transition, um, you know, and planning for retirement. And there are people who are post-career whose financial planning needs are very different. So um, the people looking at those kind of milestones is one aspect. There is also a, an increased emphasis on uh, attracting diverse audiences, um, you know, people of color, Women have traditionally, uh, you know, we need to do better at attracting um, the female reader uh, and young people. And so one of the things that uh, our editor-in-chief, David Walmsley, has talked a, a lot about is that he's, he's said to me last week, you know, print isn't necessarily the way uh, we will first attract a younger reader. Uh, perhaps it is through our podcasts, such as the Decibel or Stress Test, uh, which have been uh, tremendously uh, popular with, you know, our a younger demographic, or perhaps it is these events um, that we are putting on at the Globe and Mail. It's an alternative way to provide content uh, just to bring in new readers. So this is something that we're thinking about, um, you know, much more strategically. I would say the other things that we're really focused on are, you know, digital partnerships with, um, you know, some of the big tech giants, um, Apple and Google, uh, but also um, kind of, you know, refining our digital tools um, and helping people, you know, figure out what they need to know for as part of their personal finance journey and trying to, you know, customize those tools as much as possible, making the digital experience as seamless as possible for readers so that, you know, that it's not clunky and that we, we give people kind of new and interesting reasons to stick around. So, um, we talked a bit about the personal finance aspect when we were when we were preparing for this um, panel. Um, obviously, people are facing a lot of uh, financial challenges these days. Um, I think even navigating all of the pandemic benefits and the taxation issues around um, some of the pandemic benefits um, was a challenge for a lot of people. Something that, that really needed coverage. Um, Prita and Anne, I wonder if you could talk about how you both are, are seeing. Um, are approaching personal finance a bit differently. Uh, Prita, maybe we'll start with you. Sure, yeah, no, I think in so many ways, just to echo what Brita and Anne were talking about, the, the pandemic was really a business story and there was a large personal finance aspect to it because immediately when something like this happens, you just wanna know, well, what's gonna happen to my money? Like, mm -hmm. and if you are, you know, no matter where, at what stage in your uh, professional life um, you're in, you, you are hungry for that information. And as you said, Christine, there was just so much new information to process what's gonna happen, you know, to my student loan, you know, in the US, um, and I'm speaking specifically about the US, which is where my focus is, of course, um, you know, whether it's a student loan, whether it's if you're a small business owner, um, where am I going to, what's going to happen? Am I going to get this money from the government? When do I have to repay it? What are the terms? Um, just so many. And then the stimulus money that people got, how are you going to get it? I remember in early 2020, we had this thing called the Hub for Help, which was largely mm -hmm. just a personal finance thing, just helping people understand. And that thing just went gangbusters, you know, mm -hmm. just had so such a consistent engagement and millions of, you know, page views because people were just really hungry for that. Mm -hmm. um, Looking toward the future, I do think that as we think about our younger readers, people, you know, Gen Z entering the workforce, 
um, they think about money very differently. They they tap and use money almost very differently. Mm-hmm. You know, pr- sort of digital currencies are the norm, obviously. Um, I think people aren't using checkbooks anymore <laughs> and haven't been for a while. And so, and, you know, and financial inclusion and thinking and trying to reach um, different audiences and different readers who have maybe different cultural notions of money and like, you know, people who are more conservative about saving, people who care about where they, um, you know, thinking about investing, but want to invest only in companies that fit in with their worldview or their goals or ESG, Um, you know, so how do we reach that reader? How do we write stories for those people that people can find because personal finance always mm-hmm. ends up having a service aspect to it so how do you make your stories relevant and um you know usable but also informative for them and then we're you know we're putting a lot of um effort into and resources into our cryptocurrency coverage now, no one knows what the future of it is going to be there's still so many questions unanswered including what on earth is it uh, but uh, but you know we were trying to get better at kind of if it's part of people's portfolios and if people have investments in that we want to you know get smart about it and write stories for our readers so i you know i think it's 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 a very dynamic and changing world and some of the traditional ways in which we've covered personal finance perhaps um you know don't quite hold anymore so i'm in the middle of a rethink as well and mm-hmm. like how do we write these stories how do we attract you know newer and younger audiences and how again different formats not just the traditional you know story yeah, I really think back to the the GameStop um, frenzy <clears throat> last year. I think that really forced a lot of reconsideration about some of the business coverage. Um, and Anne, I know you're you've been um, excuse me, <clears throat> coughing here. I know you've you've um, studied Bitcoin. Um, you've actually been involved in that industry. So I wonder if that how that influences your own approach to personal finance coverage. Yeah. So just a little bit of the backstory on that in 2017, 2018, I um, took a little time out uh, from journalism, which is all I'd ever known throughout my career to go work in fintech. Um, I worked for what was at the time, one of Toronto, Canada's leading blockchain companies. And I really, I wanted to know, I needed to know what was going on there. And I wanted to be right up close. I didn't want to be so far away from it. Um, I'm working on a book about the wild and wonderful time uh, that I had and all the things that I learned. And I became a C4 certified Bitcoin professional, which just means that I, I learned about the computer science uh, that powers um, Bitcoin and, and also Ethereum. So there is a little bit of expertise there. And then I came back into journalism and I found that you know, when I initially left journalism, I was having a tough time selling stories about crypto and maybe it was a bit too early, but um, the the pushback was, it's too complicated and uh, it's much too niche. And and now they're coming to me and asking, you know, what what is an NFT and and how does this work and and all that. So it's it's terrific that things have really changed in terms of the zeitgeist um, and acceptance and editorial decisions related to that as well. This doesn't seem to be treated like a passing fad, but rather something that's here to stay and something that benefits us to to learn about um, as it evolves. Um, So, but to your point about, you know, how things have changed during the pandemic and and the personal finance piece of it, I think the pre-pandemic, for the most part, if you needed, you know, some specific financial advice about uh, debt and savings, and um, you you could do a Google search and find something, maybe it was a few years dated, um, but it was fine. Like it was, you could find out what you needed. And then if you remember back to (laughs) those dark and scary days um, in uh, 2020, when everyone was stuck at home and no one knew what the heck was going on. I personally thought we were just gonna be working from home for two weeks, two months max. And um, all of a sudden, you know, those old searches weren't cutting it. You needed new and up-to-date, fresh information 
for this weird new reality that we were all suddenly trapped in. And I, I think that has just continued, whether it was, you know, all the confusion around how to apply for CERB or is it the CERB? Um, and and uh, yeah, just these, these new frontiers that we're, you know, uh, coming to up to together. And there were so many questions. And I think Google searches are a great way to find out I mean, I'm not saying you base editorial decisions, all of them on Google searches, but if you want to find out what people are worried about, what people uh, need to know about right now, that's a, a great source. And so um, I think from a, a business, you know, reporting perspective, that's, uh, that's right there. Those are your, your cheat sheets, if you will. And they told us <laughs> that uh, the, the appetite for all things business, economy, mm -hmm. personal finance, what's happening with rates um, and all the rest of it. It was right there in those Google trends. And Christine, may I jump in? Just yeah. mentioned Reddit, which I know we talked about earlier. And, um, you know, and Anne's um, mention of Google searches reminded me that Reddit is the other place where we spent a mm -hmm. lot of time, me and my team last year during the retail stock trading mania, you know, GameStop and AMC. And we're still trying to understand how much, whether this is a permanent force in the markets or whether it was something where a lot of people stuck at home during the pandemic just began to look at, you know, buying and selling, selling stocks and where they were going, looking to understand the dynamics of the stock market, who, who are the big players, why, you know, what is short interest, what is a short sale. So, you know, I think Reddit was the other place where, um, which served as a really good, um, you know, way for us to understand what were the main issues and concerns and conversations that your, um, you know, small investors, individuals were thinking about um, as it, um, you know, connected to, to trading and investing. And the social media piece, I'm just going to jump in here, has become impossible to ignore, in my view. The, the meme stock frenzy really highlighted that. And I do think that it's something here to say. It's not just, I mean, it may have been kind of the catalyst was that we were stuck at home and had a whole bunch of, of screen time and, and not much else. Um, but it, you know, Reddit has become a place where uh, the Ontario Securities Regulator, the BC mm -hmm. Securities Regulator, they're now actively on there, purposefully uh, having conversations and listening to what's going on. You talk to um, investors on Bay Street and they say, yeah, I now have to do a sweep of Twitter uh, in addition to looking mm -hmm. things up on the Bloomberg terminal to find out the kind of real story about what's going on with uh, this specific publicly traded company. So the, the game has changed. And yes, a big part of it is, you know, retail investors having a bigger voice and social media is where they're at. Um, but there has this shift, uh, I think, is is here to stay, and um, it it really benefits us all to pay attention to it. And, and what does this mean going forward? So that's so interesting. You, you all brought up so many interesting points, um, and I think related to the question of audience, I'd love to talk to you about how um, the business the business model of business journalism. I think we're going to solve this problem right here in the next 15 minutes or so. Um, but I, I know at the Tor Toronto Star, um, our business team, which is, it's small, there's five of us and, and um, two amazing interns right now, but we, we meet every week on Zoom just to check in and talk about story ideas. Um, we, we also look at, at analytics and um, look at how stories have done. So we look at subscriptions and engagement and clicks. And, you know, we see some encouraging trends. Some of the stories that we spend more time working on, the features, the investigations, they, they definitely tend to do better on subscriptions. Um, so we see some some encouraging signs there um, and the business the business stories do well overall like within the Toronto Star which is great to see um, at the same time it really feels like the subscription game is sort of a slow burn and like is it ever going to be enough um, Frida I'd love to get your thoughts on this um, I, the New York Times is always kind of held up as the example of where subscriptions can work. And I know the journal has a pretty, where you came from has, has a pretty strong subscription model too. I wonder what your thoughts are on the sort of the long-term viability of subscriptions and also like do clicks matter? What about engagement? What, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think subscription is the way we pay for our newsroom, essentially. It's, um, and it has been part, it has been a key driver of our growth at the times for the past decade, I think, you know, 
when um, we have a new executive editor and he is inheriting a newsroom, um, plus the entire company now has like close to 10 million subscriptions. And that includes, you know, our purchase of The Athletic. Um, but um, I think even a decade ago, we were roughly under a million subscriptions. So we have, you know, turned our business around and it's the same at the journal where the focus really has been on trying to distinguish your journalism and saying that saying to potential subscribers that, you know, we have journalism worth paying for, so pay us for it. It's, it's been like as simple. And I understand that it's a very, very competitive world. There's a paywall um, everywhere that you go, because I think people, the media industry realized that, you know, you couldn't really depend on advertising to drive business. Um, so you do have an industry now where there's a lot of subscription-based um, um, reporting. Um, you know, for us, I think in terms of engagement, it's always a balance. I think depending, like you don't want to write stories that draw the biggest, um, you, you don't want to be driven by that um, notion, right? That that you're, you're writing stories that will bring the biggest eyeballs. The ideal is that you write really, really, um, you know, agenda setting journalism that by definition will drive the eyeballs because, you know, you could have like a story about a puppy that would get like, you know, million page views. And should you write more stories about puppies or should you also be <laughs> writing about the corruption going on somewhere else and holding people accountable? So I think those are challenges that like we've tried to address by saying that just do the good journalism and people will come for it and people will pay for it and you should just focus on shaping and writing the best possible story given all the resources you have. No, it's easier said than done, but like I think that's been, and then what we've done is also built, I think we've become much better across our newsrooms, across at the Journal and the Times about building the support staff around the content mm -hmm. You know, where you have really smart people who know just how to promote and place the journalism so that it gets the maximum engagement. And I think being able to invest in those parts of our growth have been really, really essential to propping up and sustaining the subscription model. You know, I'm talking about the audience editors, people who really work mm -hmm. to optimize headlines and search engine and all of that. So I think that's been kind of that realization and that investment has been good for both these newsrooms that I've worked at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a it's a crucial part, and I think I don't think that audience teams can be overlooked by any means. Um, there's often not enough uh, resources for audience teams, unfortunately. Um, Rita, what what's what's your view on on subscriptions and the business model in general from the ROB these days? Well, digital subscriptions, of course, are a key component of what it is that we do. <laughs> Um, my column is always behind the paywall, um, and I think uh, for most people who work in the report on business, uh, most of their stories are behind the paywall, so it's just something that we're used to. Um, and, you know, I, I do use our um, proprietary, um, you know, digital analytics tool, Sophie, um, to kind of assess which columns are doing well with the online readership. Of course, it doesn't capture the print readership, mm -hmm. um, but it is, it is helpful to know, um, you know, what uh, topics are converting people, um, you know, uh, into readers. And as part of that, it's also thinking about the content um, that we prov provide. And as a columnist, I'm thinking about kind of different ways um, to present uh, business topics and, and, and kind of bringing into the mainstream certain topics that perhaps we wouldn't have written about in the past. So some really good examples of that that came out of the pandemic are, you know, writing about universal childcare um, as economic policy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like when women were um, disproportionately affected by the first wave of the pandemic, they were the ones that lost the vast majority of their jobs. At one point, there was some talk of how women's gains in the workforce had been set back more than three decades. You know, the issue of universal childcare and the lack of uh, childcare spaces um, became not just a women's issue, it became actual economic policy. And some of the bank CEOs 
um, you know, also wrote in their own op-ed uh, pieces about that. Another example of something like that is, you know, sick leave, paid sick leave, mm -hmm. you know, something that many of us take for granted. Um, that became, um, you know, not just a political topic, uh, or a nice to have. I mean, you, when we talked about migrant workers or the spread of COVID um, in certain workplaces that, you know, you know, in factories, um, that was that was something that was um, a, became a real kind of uh, point of societal debate, you know, and a point of corporate social responsibility. Companies talk an awful lot about corporate social responsibility, but this was one of the topics where the rubber meets the road on corporate social responsibility. I would also say, you know, we paid more attention to uh, topics such as executive compensation, um, you know, the CEO pay ratio compared to the average worker. Uh, there were so many essential workers who uh, you know, didn't have the option from working from home. Uh, they had to show up. They were the ones facing disproportionate risk. And you know, while many of them did receive temporary hero pay, um, you know, a lot of that was scaled back. Um, but we've seen executive compensation um, you know, be a real sore point. Um, my colleague, David Milstead has been writing columns uh, and, and you know, news pieces uh, very recently about executive compensation since we're in proxy season. And I'd say the other kind of item that we've been thinking about differently about the other topic is, okay, obviously we saw, um, you know, housing, the value of housing just, you know, um, explode. Uh, the prices for homes explode during this pandemic. Uh, but at the same time, housing is a human right. Uh, became a very important focus for us as well, because we were telling people, stay home, right? Mm -hmm. You all have government. To say, but what if you don't have a home to go to, or what if you live in a congregate se setting? Um, so rethinking these topics that we and the way we've presented them um, in our business coverage, uh, you know, housing is no longer just an asset, right? This is now uh, um, an issue of human rights. Um, this is an issue that um, the pandemic has kind of really highlighted um, the, the issue of unaffordable housing, and it's I think you know, it'll continue to be something that we write about, um, but in a more comprehensive way. For sure. Um, Anne, how do you see the business model for business journalism um, within sort of the traditional TV broadcast world that, that you're working in? So I don't have a, a, a ton to talk uh, in terms of, you know, the model for that. And I, I try to kind of very carefully uh, stay out of those types of, of conversations. Um, though I do want to pick up on something that, that Rita mentioned uh, in terms of, you know, these, these problems that we had societally that existed pre-pandemic. And then with uh, COVID-19 and everything that came with it, the restrictions and all the rest of it, it just brought them into the spotlight. Um, whether it was, you know, how important our homes are and how different home is depending on where you are. Um, you know, all of a sudden homes for some people became their schools, their gyms, uh, their office, sometimes their daycare, which was difficult. I can speak from personal experience with two young kids. Um, but also a reminder that for other people, you know, it was much worse than that. Homes were either unsafe, unsuitable, maybe they didn't have access to great internet. And then what do you do when, when you need that to connect to work or to school? And, and to your point about the essential workers that, um, you know, were going into work day in and day out, but we weren't compensating them as though they were essential. Uh, and, and so I could go on and on and on, you know, the lack of safety net for, for gig workers, they were an afterthought, um, at least uh, initially, you know, when we started thinking about how are we going to deal with all of this and certain workplaces getting shut down and the future of events being a big old question mark. Um, and so I would just say that it, the great opportunity that the pandemic has given us uh, in terms of business coverage is some of the topics that maybe um, weren't in the spotlight before, but were really, really important. They were simmering just below the surface. Uh, all of a sudden, we got to dive into them in a big way. And um, I was doing interviews with people from, you know, all different walks of life. And it was, um, it was really humbling. It was, I think we're going to look back on this in terms of, you know, moment in time and say, remember, this is how we used to do things before COVID-19 hit. And then uh, we, we 
had a gut check, you know, a collective gut check. And we tried things, you know, CERB was a kind of a de facto universal basic income, which was not going to be politically sellable in the same way pre-pandemic. And so we've set precedents. We've decided that certain things are important for certain uh, groups, working parents, but it also that it benefits us collectively. So all this to say, yeah, it's um, it, no shortage of, of topics to be covered, but I think a lot of them were things that maybe as, as uh, within the business beat, we were not uh, giving them enough coverage, weren't putting them into the spotlight, uh, certainly the same way that we will now be doing going forward. Yeah, I mean, I guess anyone who thinks that business um, reporting is boring or not relevant to people's lives, <laughs> I think the pandemic has shown us that it that it really couldn't that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, something else that we've we talked a lot about um, as a society during the pandemic and um, during the past few years has been diversity and inclusion, and I want to talk about some of the strategies that that you see being used to promote more diversity and inclusion in business newsrooms and also in business coverage. Um, Prita, can you, can you talk about, about how you see this issue? Yeah, I think um, two ways. I'll, I'll talk about um, our coverage and our hiring, two, two aspects that I'm, I'm obviously very closely involved in. I think we are um, becoming much more systematic about making sure that for every job that we're looking for across the newsroom, right, not just in business and finance, but, uh, you know, across the entire newsroom, that we really, really have a thoughtful and wide and extensive search that we go out of our way. And we do this in, with intention and, you know, methodically to, to draw up a list of as diverse and inclusive a list of potential candidates, even if they've never really thought of applying for the job that we want, or if they're working in a related field, but we think that they could be a good fit. So I think our process for that search um, has, you know, I think people have always known and wanted to do that, but we're becoming much more systematic about it, which I think is great progress. And, you know, we work closely with our HR teams, and um, I think everyone is aware that this is necessary, and now we're kind of implementing a lot of the steps. Um, so I hope that that produces at least um, a broader and more um, diverse slate of candidates that um, will help us improve um, the diversity and inclusiveness of our newsroom. So that's on the hiring end. On the coverage side, I mean, it, it makes me happy to see that my reporters, I think, are very aware um, of looking at how finance and the actions of the main actors in the world of finance, i.e. Wall Street, you know, how they behave, how they act, how their actions affect different groups of people. So we and then to hold those institutions accountable, you know, whether we, we did a story not too long ago about the insurer State Farm and how there were all of these lawsuits alleging that um, State Farm, you know, behave differently toward people of color. Um, you know, the, the company's comment is in, in the story, of course, and it's online. Um, so we, we, you know, that's just a recent example. And also in terms of the people we try to quote, I think um, my reporters are pretty good about just saying, okay, so we need an expert voice on this. Let me try for a woman. Let me try for, um, you know, not a white male. I mean, there are plenty of those and it's fine to, to quote them too. And I think sometimes they're the best, but I think at least if you're trying and it can be hard under deadline when, you know, you've got only 20 minutes and you need an outside voice and maybe this is the only person you have. So these steps are small and slow and take time. But I think if you're aware of it, as people increasingly are, and you're trying to be better um, about who you're quoting, the way you're thinking about stories, over time, you begin to see slow but measurable signs of progress. So that's, that's how I see it yeah. for us. Yeah, and uh, Anne, I'd love to pick up on that point, just in, especially because uh, you work in such a visual medium. So um, when you're quoting, when you're featuring people in your reports, it's, it's quite evident um, whether it's a white man or not. Um, I wonder how you've been approaching that issue in the past few years. 
And I will say that um, I think the process has become easier. And a big part of that is um, on the part of, you know, the people on the ground collecting the information and then going to the different voices, but also um, there's buy-in from the gatekeepers, even within our newsroom. Um, there is an understanding. I, I feel that, you know, if I need more time to get a better story with better and diverse voices, I can push for that. And I, I feel like there is um, an, an appetite for that kind of thing. I will also say just from a kind of news you can use perspective, um, diverse sources beget diverse sources. So if you find someone who's who's terrific and um, you know you can stay in touch with them, but also you can ask them about their own networks. And um, for me personally, it has enriched my reporting in ways that I can't even begin to describe. Um, my virtual Rolodex is, is much bigger, but it's also more um, precise and exact. And uh, it has yielded this kind of uh, you know, symphony of people that existed before, but now I know about them and can bring them and, and share them on a national platform. And just really quickly as well, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, reaching those diverse audiences. And I mentioned being on Snapchat as, as one way and um, it's, it's a big week for me. So I'm just gonna talk about just a few projects as well that are launching this week. So I have a, a podcast, it's called The Peak. Um, the first episode is going to be rolling out on Friday. And I think that's going to be a really important way for us to reach um, you know, a, a younger audience that is interested in business stories, but is also hungry for some analysis. You know, Why are these the top stories? What does that mean to me? And there's room as well for um, some personality, some hot takes. And I think that that's really important uh, for, in terms of you know, keeping those stories fresh in people's minds and helping them to understand them. Because business stories can be tremendously complicated. And when you kind of um, distill them into their, their essence and then you can kind of play around with it a little bit to the point of, we don't necessarily want to you know, write about kittens and puppies all the time, though they do very well and there's great engagement. <laughs> Maybe there's a way to take some of the things that are trending in pop culture and say, you know what, there's a direct line between this and this top business story and, and here's here's the deal. Um, in addition to that, so the podcast is you know sub 10 minutes. Um, I'm doing my inaugural current affairs piece uh, <laughs> on Global News's uh, show, The New Reality, uh, and it airs on Saturday and it's all about the, the war for talent and the mm -hmm incredible shifts that are happening in terms of who holds the power in the job market. And it's very much a job seekers market uh, in a way that some recruiters have said they, they have not seen in their lifetime. Um, so this kind of expanding and contracting of business stories and this expansion of what is a business story and what platform it can live on and the types of voices that we use to tell these stories. I think um, that's a big piece of the, the diversity puzzle. Absolutely. I am probably going to go look up some cat videos after this, but um, you, you have to have a, a, a balanced media diet, I think. Um, when I've, I've found that also in terms of finding diverse sources that actually writing, having written some stories about diversity in various um, um, aspects of business, various industries, um, has helped me find sources who I then try to turn to as experts um, when I, I'm writing about issues that are not specifically about diversity. Um, Rita, any tips and tricks on this yeah. point? Um, so, I mean, echoing um, both of what um, Rita and Anne have said, you know, we're looking at hiring differently, um, we're looking at content differently, um, but I guess the thing that I wanted to um, say and speak directly to anyone who is a journalism student right now who's considering, um, you know, a career, uh, <laughs> you know, in business journalism, please consider it. Business journalism is where it's not. Forget political reporting. That's just boring. Um, I'm, I'm being really serious when I say so, huh? <laughs> I'll make, I know very unpopular for saying that, but listen, the real power brokers in this country are in the business community and we need diverse voices. Um, uh, we need diverse writers. And the thing that I wanted to emphasize is that, you know, being an outsider, uh, actually does give you an advantage. You know, I'm an outsider, you know, this is, you know, I write about a community um, that is not the one that I grew up in. Um, these are not people I roll with on the weekends. These are my friends. And so that actually gives you an opportunity to be fiercely independent. You know, you're not trying to seek people's approval. You're writing in the public interest. And you can do that, um, you know, 
but you can you can actually champion the public interest because you're not seeking that approval. You're not, um, you know, writing about your friends. You're not worried that you're going to offend your dad's, uh, you know, uh, bestie on the golf course. Um, and you know, I, I think that I would encourage everyone to think very long and hard about the difference between um, and the opportunity that we have. Um, you know, distinguishing access journalism from accountability journalism. And I think accountability journalism is what really matters. It's about, you know, holding companies accountable um, and acting as a check, you know, when they, you know, make claims, you know, when they mislead their investors um, or if there's corporate malfeasance, if there's money laundering, um, corruption. I mean, there's uh, not every story is a negative story, of course, but there is an aspect of accountability journalism that is there that should be very appealing to younger people. You know, you can do it differently. And, you know, this will be uh, the best time intellectually you'll ever have in your career uh, because you're constantly learning on the job. So this is my personal appeal to anyone who's watching, <laughs> who's interested in the career. Come talk to any of us. As you can see from this panel alone, the future of business journalism is female <laughs> and very exciting. So, I mean... Uh, approach any one of us um, and, and be happy to talk to you about it. And I just wanted to say one more thing that I learned from Christine, um, <laughs> because I do a reported column, you know, she's, when she and I worked together at the Globe, she used to, you know, call up companies and she'd ask for interviews with people and she'd say, you know, isn't there a woman I could speak to? <laughs> isn't there a visible minority I can speak to? Um, that was her approach. And I thought that was brilliant. It was brilliant. And I, something that I have adopted in my own practice as a columnist, because I do uh, write a reported column, I've done the exact same thing. So you know, thank you, Christine. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an interesting thing. Their sort of experiment, especially when I was on a beat where I was covering the same companies over and over and trying to get some different voices into stories and, and but really just wanting them to think about it and hopefully um, present people as sources on, on and on an organic basis, not just because this person is a woman or a visible minority. Um, anyways, I think it's a it's a work in progress for us all, as I'm sure we would all agree. Um, I'd like to move to some questions that we've gotten. Um, some of the topics we've actually covered and what we've already talked about. Um, but uh, one question from Eugene E is, how is climate change influencing business coverage? Um, Obviously a huge topic today. I think Rita, you're involved in a panel on sustainable investing later today. Um, Frida, I wonder if you could weigh in on, on what you see on this front. Yeah, I think, you know, we have, so we have a climate desk now, you know, and we've, we've had for a while. So people who are very specifically focused on writing about the climate in as many ways as possible. But, you know, I think the question is really rooted in the bigger point that Rita was making about business journalism being at the heart of so many things, right? It's about money, it's about policy, it's about power, it's about how decisions get made, it's about why a company can choose or not to choose do, to do something, right? Like it's about whether an investor is pushing a company for more disclosure, it's about geopolitics, you know, driving short-term interests versus what we all know is good for the climate in the long term. You know, we didn't expect a war to change, to force people to revisit, um, say, Biden's, you know, climate plan. So all of that is very much um, part of business journalism coverage. It's an expansive view, but I think it's the right view because money and business is at the center of a lot of these decisions. I mean, for us, I think climate is something that we're reacting to, following the story, trying to understand how seriously business are, businesses are taking it, reporting on their efforts, holding them to account when we see flagrant violations of their self-stated you know, stated interests in an environment where there isn't very clear regulatory policy or guidance mm -hmm. yet, you know, what, how do you hold someone to account? I think that is a challenge for all climate reporting at the moment because governments everywhere are also stuck in how um, strict you can be, right? And the, the kind of 
preoccupations of electoral politics often interfere. And the idea of national, you know, the fact that we have national boundaries also interfere with how you think about covering and writing and doing justice to a topic that is so global and so long-term. So I think these are challenges that we think about and um, are trying to, again, get more systematic about covering climate in itself, but also through business, through policy, through money, through holding companies to account, through following investors and what they're really looking for. And the fact that a lot of companies, I think, largely probably pay lip service to the notion of ESG um, and that they need to be pushed and prodded to do more. And who's doing that? Journalism is only one piece of it. So, you know, following all of these different threads, I think, is is something that we're very aware of and um, doing more and more of. The disclosures around um, around climate and ESG are so varied and frustrating. It, it sort of reminds me of diversity issues where um, we don't even have the base info to be able to sort of gauge whether progress is being made. And you're kind of in this situation where you're having to take a company or an organization at their word. It's extremely frustrating. Um, and how do you see climate um, coverage in, in, your, in your reporting? I think uh, the view of kind of where it fits in with business uh, journalism has changed in that it's impossible to ignore from a, certainly from a risk perspective, whether you're an insurance company or insert any kind of business here. Um, And I think that we're probably in terms of moments in time, uh, there is corporate buy-in in terms of it is important from a PR perspective. Is there the action to kind of really show that that commitment? I don't know that we're there yet, but maybe we're we're close. Is um, what I would say, just in a nutshell. Got it. And Rita, I know this is probably on your mind since you're going into another um, panel around this topic later today. But how, how are how are you seeing this this issue? Well, um, the issue of the green transition is one of the kind of core topics um, that kind of. Uh, factored into our um, reimagination of our business coverage. And so, you know, there's different ways to cover that. Obviously, you know, what is it going to mean for traditional, um, you know, oil producing um, provinces such as Alberta uh, is one. What is it going to mean for the Canadian banks, which have traditionally been big lenders to the oil patch? You know, there is a transition risk for these banks. Um, if, you know, you suddenly um, force a change to happen too quickly. Um, so, you know, how how are the banks managing that from a regulatory um, perspective? Um, you know, what does this mean for retail investors? You know, this is something that I'm very interested in. You know, this is becoming more mainstream, environmentally focused investing. But what is the risk that comes with a lot of these investments? Have we looked at that? Is there enough disclosure about uh, about risk? Um, because a lot of these investments are new. A lot of these funds are new. They don't have a performance history. Do retail investors who, you know, genuinely want to do the right thing, do they have the appropriate tools to gauge the amount of risk um, that they might be exposing themselves to uh, with their personal portfolios? I think that's something that, um, you know, we can really examine. Our cover story last Saturday actually happened to be on, um, you know, this issue of environmental and uh, climate-friendly investing. As you mentioned, um, the Globe is holding a and, and the virtual event today that focuses on sustainable finance, and I'm part of that. This is a huge topic, um, and one um, that I think, again, there's a lot of accountability and uh, you know an opportunity for business journalists to really dive in, really act as a check on which, which companies are living up to their words and which ones are just offering, you know, um, the, the kind of the PR, the greenwashing. Yeah, yeah. and. I think this is so important. So I'm really happy that we actually have a dedicated beat reporter who looks at green investing. But of course, this is is not just something for one uh, reporter. It's something that our columnists are covering. It's something that, you know, that we're looking at across our newsroom. Yeah, it sort of crosses every beat at this point, doesn't it? Um, Here's an interesting question from Petra KM. Um, Will we start to see a shift in narratives about entrepreneurship? towards a bigger focus on micro and small, medium-sized enterprise, entrepreneurship, by and for the people, 
versus billionaire and venture capital shenanigans. Um, I think we can think of one billionaire engaging in some shenanigans <laughs> right now. Um, and do you want to do you want to tackle this one? Are you perhaps talking about the richest man in history? <laughs> um, yeah, there, there are times when, you know, it's difficult to uh, ignore because he has this tremendous ability to grab headlines and to do things that are intrinsically newsworthy. Um, that shift that I, I, you talked about, I think it has begun. Um, I think, like many things, uh, the pandemic has accelerated that, you know, the 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 corporate shenanigans and the the kind of one percenters and how they roll uh, compared with, you know, middle class and, and, and lower income precariously employed people, what different realities and universes we inhabit. Um, so yeah, I, I think that has begun. There's a great appetite for that type of thing. And yeah, maybe there wasn't enough of that scrutiny um, pre-pandemic, but certainly there's an awareness of it now and um, no hesitation in terms of the accountability piece. And really, um, I don't want to say going for the jugular, that sounds so aggressive, uh, but you know, not feeling the need to to play nice. These are very sophisticated investors and um, you can really hold their feet to the fire. I, I think uh, certainly in our newsroom, that is the, the feeling. Frida, I think the, the Times had a whole magazine issue on billionaires a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, how, how are you seeing this? this I mean, um, I don't see, I don't see, I honestly, you know, I read um, most of those articles and I've written about wealth in the past. I, I, I think we need to hold power to account. I think we need to establish that there is enormous wealth, most of it hard to estimate, most of it just essentially guesses. You know, there is the industry of catering to billionaires, but if we don't explain that in our society, it's there's in this widening income and wealth inequality that's worsening and that it is systemic. And, you know, I don't think anyone is writing about billionaires to say, oh my goodness, look at these amazing lives they lead. If they are, I think it is in the context of look at what's going on, like real wages for a lot of people, you know, this present moment, yes, it's a worker's market, but real wages for people have really not gone up at at anywhere near the rate that billionaire wealth has when you look at the Russian oligarchs and the fact that so many of them have massive investments, you know, people fi fixate on the yachts, but they have many more billions of dollars tucked away in US markets, you know, held through multiple shell companies. Um, I think all of that needs to be part of our general knowledge base because otherwise we might be under the illusion that things are okay. Okay, life is this way and, you know, there are rich people, but what does it mean to be rich? A million and a billion are very different. And the fact that, you know, billionaire wealth grew so massively during the pandemic. I mean, I think in the context of inequality, I think it's really important to focus on that part of our, um, you know, global economy. Um, in terms of covering stories of individuals, I think are always, and we, you know, the Times really does look for stories of individuals. For instance, when you um, um, look at the Amazon um, unionization story, the fact that it was, you know, individual action that led to it. We did a big profile a few years earlier and we, you know, wrote, followed it up with um, writing about the guy who had started it. So those are stories about individual success, maybe not entrepreneurship, but you know, I think we cover um, both ends of it. But I really don't think that we should take our like attention off the billionaire class. Mm. Um, can I just jump in for a second, Christine? Yeah, really. um, I think that entrepreneurship is something that we really do need to focus on um, because these small businesses um, took the you know real brunt of the economic shutdowns and there is a real concern um, that the entrepreneurial spirit has been uh, damaged um, you know uh, particularly if you are a woman or if you are a visible minority um, you know who was already facing barriers to obtaining financing um, I think this is an area where we really need to focus on going forward as we continue with the recovery to ensure that the recovery and entrepreneurship 
uh, and in the small business sector is an equitable one. And it's actually a topic um, that I have just filed a draft on for the Department <laughs> Business Magazine, it's specifically about barriers um, facing uh, Black entrepreneurs. So, you know, I think this is something, a real opportunity for us going forward to kind of, you know, even with entrepreneurship and, and, and small businesses to kind of rethink um, who we're writing for. Well, um, I, as expected, this hour went extremely quickly. And um, unfortunately, there's other questions that we weren't able to get to, but we did cover some of the themes that were raised in the questions during our earlier conversation. Um, so I just wanted to thank you all and Anaprita and Rita. Um, we've really learned a lot from this discussion. Um, like I said, we could keep talking for probably an hour or two longer. Um, I wanted to thank everybody who joined us and those who submitted questions. Um, and to stay up to date on CJF events, you can sign up for the newsletter or follow the Canadian Journalism Foundation on social media. So thank you everybody for watching and enjoy the rest of your day.